listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Marlena Doubt. She's a professor of French and African-American studies at Yale University and author of the recently published book, Awakening the Ashes, An Intellectual History of the Haitian Revolution. She's a series editor of New World Studies at UVA Press, co-editor of Global Black History at Public Books, and has been a featured writer in various magazines and newspapers, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Nation, Harper's Bazaar, Essence, and The Conversation, among others. In this conversation, Dr. Doubt argues that the discourse around freedom and equality should be linked to what she calls the 1804 principle that no human being should ever again be colonized, an idea propagated by Haitians. She sheds light on not-so-known 18th and 19th century Haitian revolutionaries pamphleteers, and political thinkers, as well as their contribution to the Haitian Revolution. So we're here today with Dr. Marlena Doubt. Welcome. Uh, We're really happy to have you. Um, So just to get started, if you can talk to us about the origins of the project, um, a sort of invitation on how you came to it, what sort of concerns, personal, ethical, philosophical, drew you to the questions in Awakening the Ashes. Yes. So, um, Thank you so much for inviting me first. Um, it's my pleasure to be here. And um, this project, strangely enough, started actually in graduate school because I wanted to write my dissertation on Haitian intellectual history kind of broadly. And, you know, at that time, which was the early 2000s, my um, advisors who were incredibly supportive and wanted me to you know, push forward this comparative project I had on you know, 19th century Haitian writers and 19th century Haitian thought were kind of like, you know, I don't know if you write only about the Haitian thinkers, you know, it will be a little kind of opaque for other readers. And interestingly enough, they pushed me to make the project very comparative. So in my dissertation, I ended up talking about, um, from a literary perspective, 19th century Haitian representations of their revolution, along with British, U.S., and French representations. And that actually really gave me a lot of perspective that I wouldn't necessarily have had, had I not pursued that route. So I sort of think, you know, my mother always says everything happens for a reason. And even sometimes when we're being stopped in our path and we think this is a a roadblock, it might just actually be a detour that, you know, we take the long way around, but we see something beautiful and learn a lot on the path. And I think that's sort of what happened here was that, um, and my dissertation is what became the book that is Tropics of Haiti, which was my first book. Um, and, And then I sort of was able to wander through Haitian um, intellectual history um, at my own pace because of that. I was I didn't have the pressure of writing a dissertation or a first book and trying to get tenure. And so I've been meditating on this book for more than 15 years because of that. And the issue for me became, um, it became very imperative to say, all right, there are all these foreigners who wrote about the Haitian Revolution from the time it began up to the present day. C.L.R. James is probably the most famous, a Trinidadian radical, um, the, probably the most famous writer that people associate with the Haitian Revolution for the Black Jacobins. But what about all the Haitian thinkers who 
propelled the ideas that fuel such narratives. If you read C.L.R. James's bibliography, he's citing 19th century Haitian historians. He knows their work. He's reading them. And so how would it change all of our perspective if we got to those thinkers, not by way of C.L.R. James and Michel Wolf Trouillot, whose bibliography I also examined because he is also deeply informed by these 18th and 19th century Haitian thinkers. What would it change if we all read them? And so that's what I wanted to do in this book was show us what we can learn from not just C.L.R. James's interpretation of them or Michel Wolf Trouillot's, because that's effectively what happens. We encounter them as nameless and faceless, really, um, filtered through the perspective of others and what would happen if we each take it upon ourselves to engage with this body of writing, which is vast, and then derive our own analyses of the revolution um, from our own readings of it instead of through a second or third or fourth hand as it kind of goes through generation and generation of people quoting James and Trio just to use two of the most emblematic examples. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, there's there's lots more to come, but that was a great way to introduce. <laughs> that was a good way to introduce really the book, um, and you make it very clear in the first couple of pages. So if you if the, if the reader didn't get it, I don't I don't know what else would be needed. <laughs> and um, so you and you make it very clear that the way the arguments that you present, Haiti is not a pit stop. <laughs> um, the Haitian Revolution, the, the thinkers and the ideas they presented forward can be traced into the theories and arguments we see today um, in different places of the world. And just to start off, um, because you you know you mentioned Toyo, and you organized the book in three different parts. So can you speak to us a little bit about how you organized it? And I'm you started the book with Trio and um, his work of silencing the past and the T D Fable. I know I mispronounced that because it's in Haitian Creole. And I just think it was just a very it really it set the tone of, you know, what you just said, but also like, hey, let's look at the other work of Trio that's also not really talked about and why it's not talked about and how this work is actually, it sets the precedent of what we um, often quote, silencing the past and then, you know, moving forward. So, Yes. No, thank you for that. Um, yes. So the Trouillot's first book is Tidi Feboulé Sou Iswaïti, which I talk about in the, in the book as, you know, something like burning debates in Haitian history. It's recently been translated for the first time into English as stirring the pot of Haitian history uh, by Liverpool University Press. But up until, I guess that was last year, earlier this year, um, there were no translations at all of this work. So any um, reader who wanted to read Puyo's first work, which is actually a history of the Haitian Revolution, unlike Silencing the Past, which is a meditation on the effects of framing the Haitian Revolution as a non-event, um, the silences that cohere when this happened in its own era and in scholarship, but it does not narrate kind of a play-by-play -play history of the Haitian Revolution, which is more so what T.D. Feboulet does do, um, takes us through various moments and helps us to understand the different actors involved in the revolution and some of the ethical and political conundrums they went through. Um, and so I organized my book um, in terms of how someone would come to kind of um, think about the history of this island, IET, um, in the indigenous uh, appellation, but is also IET on its Western third today, that um, Haiti shares with the Dominican Republic. And so we start with colonialism, move to independence, and then to sovereignty, because I really, you know, there was a way in which your revolution is a chapter, but it's not one of the major parts. It's within another major part of independence, because I talk about how Haitian independence is a process. If we don't get from uh, colonialism to sovereignty without going through a process. And mm -hmm. the same way that sovereignty can be unmade, which is the uh, topic of the brief kind of epilogue where I talk a little bit about the U.S. occupation. And so what I really wanted to do in organizing the book this way was to say, I wanted it to be a book that you could, if you didn't really know the history of the revolution, you would encounter the history of the revolution along the way, but you would also 
think about and confront the ideas that drove it forward and how those who participated in it came to arrive at those ideas because they had to also go through a process thinking about the relationship and disappearance largely uh, of the indigenous population of the island through wars, disease, and deportation. Uh, the Spanish deported some of the first rebels. Um, and, and the Haitian revolutionaries confront this and say, this could happen to us. What what should we do in response to this? And they say not, we don't, we want to do what the opposite of the indigenous did. No, they say, actually, we need to follow in their path, that this, there is a path for us. And the path is in the 15th and 16th century rebels who I talk about in the first chapter called indigenous, and that that's the path forward. And I thought it was so interesting that that came from 19th century Haitian thinkers, 18th century revolutionaries, not from me. Because a lot of times, um, you know, not it's not necessarily a, a bad or wrong perspective, but we take something now and then we read it back into a situation to perform an analysis. And so what was interesting to me was, it wasn't me saying the Haitian revolutionaries took inspiration from the indigenous population of the island, from the Caciques and the Aitians, the Zaraguans, different regions of the, the island. It was, they were saying that. When Toussaint Louverture talks about being inspired by the blue maroons of Jamaica, so many people said, you can't compare that, those situations. But Toussaint Louverture is the one who makes the comparison. That's what's important there, that we see, oh, there's such different situations. Is not the, qu the question is, why did he see that there was a similarity? What did that mean for him? And so that's what I tried to explore, even though, you know, I can tell you so many people just said, but, you know, it, those, they're just vastly different histories. You can't compare them. Mm -hmm. like, but the people that I'm reading are comparing them because they live in a world in which they see things that maybe we don't see because we're too focused on minute details. And they are very plugged into what happens in some other place in the world can definitely affect what happens in the place they live in. And you definitely put that across in terms of like when you are reading the chapters of your book, you have like, well, me personally, <laughs> I had to put myself like in 1791, right? And how you move from 1791 to 1801 to 1805. And then how you, you, you place those, you're just like, well, these are important milestones, I, I guess I can say that you know, show parallel of like what we see today, it just didn't come from anywhere. Um, and it's just like this, you really do have a sit there with you, um, you know, and, and especially I think what I really like is you give names, you give names to the white colonists, um, you give names to the plantation, like there are names for everything. <laughs> I can see how this took you 15 years. That must have been really like, the I'm so I'm very curious about like the records that you had to go through. You did mention how going to the archives was like being in a crime scene that was organized. It was a like you wrote that beautifully. Um, very very. Like, there there were two parts. The the first part of how number one to get here in, in order for this book to even be produced was because they were. Um, these Haitian thinkers, p politicians, writers had amazing record keeping um, skills that allowed you to to even have this information. And then you also saw the other side of being in the archives of, I think it was in Outre-mer in Aix-en-Provence. And you were just like, that was just organized crime, just put, um, I guess, there for, for scholars to come in and see. You do show both perspectives. Um, the book is, I have questions later, which we'll get to on the contradictions, um, you know, of, of different sides. But can you, I just want to ask a little bit more about the tea de Fébule in regards to how, when Toyo wrote it, you explained how the organization content and form, everything is Creole-based. It's, it's, well, it's Haitian Creole it's Haitian references. It's, um, can you speak to how that kind of sets the tone in like writing in Creole, thinking in Creole helps us to better understand um, the context? Definitely. Because, I mean, so that part um, where I start talking about how 
Trouillot uses both a sacred and secular understandings of Vodou because, you know, you can think of their books today that will talk about um, A.Z. Lee, one of the Haitian law, um, kind of in a metaphorical way, but then you could also come at it from a religious studies perspective or an anthropological perspective and be talking about how Haitians actually encounter the loi, Papa Legba and A.Z. Lee in their lives. And it was interesting to me that Trouillot seems to be melding in a certain way both approaches. He's taking a Haitian frame of reference, something that he knows his readers will be familiar with, um, such as Marasa twins, um, or Trois a famous Haitian kind of folk song, and and then infuses a revolutionary perspective uh, through that, a perspective of the revolution from which we can derive certain understandings. And this, to me, seemed fundamentally opposed to the fact that um, it's almost a tick that somebody will say, they say this about CLR James as well, but the Marxist scholar or and after his untimely death, um, th- there were a lot of meditations on his life in which they talked about how influenced he was, not just by Marx, but all these European thinkers. Mm-hmm. And I just thought to myself, I can see, and as I point out in the book, I say, oh, nope, there's passages that have corollaries in Marx, but don't they also have immediate corollaries in things that happened in Haiti. And also, if you live in a linguistic diglossia, where one language is considered high and the other language is considered low, which is the situation that exists in Haiti to this day with French and Haitian Creole, French being high and Creole being considered the low language, even though the vast majority of Haitians speak Creole as their primary language, if you go through the school system, if you look at news, radio, um, I would say other than music, literature, all of that is dominated by French language uh, production that's changing and kind of rapidly so, I would say, within the last 10 years. But it is still the most famous Haitian writers outside of Haiti are English language speakers or French language speakers, and they write in those corresponding languages. And that's not to say, you know, knowing languages is a wonderful thing, being multilingual, but at the cost of the valorization of a person's home language, the way that they value that and have come to see themselves, no, because most people will master their primary language in all those realms, writing and speaking and listening and reading, and then they will come to the other languages unless they grow up in a truly bilingual or multilingual environment, which is not the case for the majority of Haitians. And so they're told not to use this language of Haitian Creole in these kind of formal settings. And so it was fascinating to me that Michel of Tuyo's, one of the first big things he does in exile in the United States is to publish a book in a language the majority of people in the United States will not be able to read. So mm-hmm. who then is that book for? Mm-hmm. This is a person who deliberately said, I'm going to write for and two Haitians. And so to me, for me, in thinking about Awakening the Ashes and writing an intellectual history of Haiti, this one about the forms of thought that cohered around the revolution before and after and during um, was if someone says, who will be the audience of this book, which is sort of the, was the implicit question, implied question under my dissertation, you know, who's going to be the audience for this? Because people won't know these thinkers who I do name at every turn we are talking about. And I thought, well, this book though is for people, as Jean Casimir said of his own book, who want to listen to the Haitian people. If you don't have any interest in, interest in that thing, you can keep on going along silencing the past like all the predecessors before. But this is a book for people who want to encounter Haitians as theorists and thinkers of their own world, not as just the people that you study when you want to find out how the Haitian revolution affected life in a particular U.S. city or European outpost or influenced a particular thinker. And there's nothing wrong with those studies. It's just to say, why is the predominance of Haitian studies in the North Atlantic are about how other people encountered the revolution rather than how the Haitian people thought about it, wrote about it, spoke about it in their own era and beyond. And that's the major difference that you see between Haitian scholars and U.S. scholars is Haitian scholars have been doing this, as I showed with the book, for since the revolution. Mm -hmm. This is not in a certain way. This is only, this is for people in the United States at the same time as I hope, you know, that I am adding to the genealogy of uh, the Haitian predecessors. I'm adding some details and forms of analyses, but this is to really help people in the North Atlantic interested in the Haitian perspective, encounter it 
um, in a sort of more um, deliberate way than they do in Tuyo or C.L.R. James's works, where you you know you have to go through the footnotes largely um, uh, to to really understand the magnitude of how much they were also impacted by Haitian thought. That yeah, that's um, I I do hope though that your book is translated into Haitian Creole. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it is because I did not know that information about Toyo until I read your book. I was like, oh, his first book was in you know, and it speaks like, well, why? Why did he do that? There was a reason. There was still um, there was still something he was trying to convey, and I just think that's very important. And it just made me reflect on you know the works that I've read, and I'm like, well, where did they really start from? <laughs> you know, that point of origin, um, and because it's a it's a power of that exercising silence, um, and it just, yeah, it's just something I think as a up-and-coming scholar, something for me to pay attention to a little bit more closely, and can you speak? I just also, once again, thank you for all the names that you, like for each name you've placed, you put a comma and you were like, let me remind you again of who this person is. <laughs> so it was just very, um, they're names that once again, they are in footnotes of things that I'm sure we've read, but we, they were nameless, faceless. Um, and you've put a name to every single person. So that's just, it's just such a, it's it's a it's a great work as an example of um, you know what to do, and I guess in that, can you tell us a little bit about the that the process of re going through record keeping and going through both sides? Because you were not only did you go through you know the European side and what was written on that, and you also went through enslaved testimonies, um, the the public the printed works of, you know, the activists, the thinkers that you've mentioned. Um, and how was, how was that process for you? And also, you know, looking them at, looking at them as complementary and you, what were some of the challenges? Um, I'm just very curious because you do use a mixture of enslaved testimony and also memory, personal experience um, of the thinkers and writers and activists. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say to the kind of broad question of, you know, what's the experience like? I would say it was sometimes really, really painful um, on both ends because, as you mentioned, you know, I talk about going into the archives of the colonial office for the Archive National d'Outre-mer, which is where all the overseas archives of France and, and its colonies are housed, is like walking into a crime scene because, you know, they've written down all of the terrible things that they've done to the people they're enslaving and sometimes to the free men of color who have, you know, gotten into the crosshairs for violating their ridiculous laws about what kind of hair they should wear and, you know, how they should comport themselves in public and all kinds of things, right? And then on the flip side of that, it is not as if on the um, Haitian perspective or the people of color of Saint-Domingue who are writing this or the Haitian revolutionaries like Toussaint Verture and Desalines, et cetera, that we're going to get, we don't get the counter to that. We get a different perspective on it. Yes, all of those terrible things that you wrote down in your archives happened, but let me tell you why what you're calling a punishment so-and-so ran away, so I put their foot in a nabo, uh, like a lock, and so that they wouldn't be able to walk or a chain around the, of the neck. Let me tell you, that's torture. That's not a punishment. The person is trying to be free, and that's not a crime, right? So they're basically, they are complementary, actually, in a strange kind of um, perverse way, because the colonists tell on themselves, um, even the... Mm. Uh, records where they, you know, Moho de Saint-Marie kept all of these records as well in this book about laws and constitutions of the colony. And they had all the judgments that were handed down against various people, including enslaved people on the plantations who tried to run away or tried or tried to use violence to, you know, as uh, avenge, for example, their mother being killed violently in front of them. Right. Um, and then they talk about what they do to these individuals, but it's all kind of juridical. It's within the law. And the one thing that we know about state power and state authority, right, is that it makes that form of violence seem rightful, inevitable, justified. And anything outside of it is the crime, is deserves retribution, deserves punishment. And 
the Haitian perspective um, really at, co- makes us question the language that we use to talk about it. Because I had to stop myself from saying just slave punishments like that, because that suggests that the enslaved person did something wrong, because you, normally people are punished when they do something wrong. And mm-hmm. And to reframe it the way the Haitians do as slave tortures, mm-hmm. that like, cruelty toward the people that who they were enslaving. And that also made me much more careful in how I described the colonists as well. So mm-hmm. even though sometimes I felt like, oh man, <laughs> this sentence could be shorter, but I needed to say this man tortured this other man named mm-hmm. X as well. Because these are people, it is not a slave owner whipped his slave. Right, because even in that language, it sounds like, well, he owns the slave. A slave is a person who doesn't control his own destiny. No, this human being took, you know, a cord and slashed another human being and made them bleed and hurt them. And reading through all of that, especially in the Vate book, The Colonial System Unveiled from 1814, you see the number of crimes on the part of the white colonists he is cataloging becomes just kind of overwhelming. And then in some of his later works where he says, you know, how if you really actually think about what the people who are calling themselves Christians are doing, if you mm-hmm. actually think about it, how can you not feel disgust? How can you not feel shame? How can you not feel terror and horror? And yet he says, and that's instead by engaging with the French writers who wrote about the revolution, he says, look how they frame things. They frame it as entirely justified. Mm-hmm. And so that meant also, since the thinkers that I am studying were reading the Europeans as well and going into their archives to kind of deconstruct them, if you will, that I also had to do that as much as, you know, I say, oh, it's a Haitian history written by Haitian hands, but it is also an engagement with all of the people who kept trying to silence those various actors and writers as they went along or mm-hmm. as yeah, and in in so doing, you so some I know some of the ones that like stuck through with me, and you know throughout the whole book from parts one through three would be like Julian uh, Raymond. He was so born in October seventeen forty four in Saint Domingue, and how he was able to point out the incoherent consistencies in the French Revolution. But most importantly, you you know you really put it forth in that really the difference between when color prejudice began and the difference between that and slavery, because those are like the intricate fine lines of like, they really were, how do I say this? Like reading the book, I was like, well, the decolonial efforts that we're going through universally now, like this has been going on for some time um, in detail as well. Right. We just, who we attribute it to is very interesting. <laughs> you know, I guess that's kind of like the way to put it. But um, can you talk about, I guess, Raymond and his story? And, you know, I just think he's he's a fascinating character to me because you really, you give a very um, wholesome perspective. You d- you're not just um, presenting these people as, well, they were great and they were heroes, period. You show them from every angle. You show the material transformations they had to go through, spiritual transformations, how um, they started as enslavers and then moved to abolitionists, the journeys, um, the things they pointed to, the inconsistencies within themselves that they also tried to acknowledge or could not acknowledge, which is very telling as to um, the psychological effects of colonialism as to how far can you um, undo some things. So yeah, I just kind of wanted to know more about that. Yes. So Julien Raymond is a very kind of central figure, as you mentioned in the book, um, particularly once we, at the end of the first part in the chapter about prejudice, and then as we move through the early phases of the revolution and interest, because he's, and it, it was interesting to me because he's someone who doesn't normally get associated with the later periods of the revolution, even though he had a huge hand, played a huge role in the formation of Toussaint Vierture's um, famous constitution of 1801 for the colony of Saint-Domingue and its idea that the colony could remain free and French, which is, of course, as I point out in the book, is this huge paradox because there are tons of people who 
don't want, and Napoleon Bonaparte, yeah. one of them don't want this situation <laughs> to exist at all. And will do everything in his might to try to undo it. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it struck me as um, Raymond is this figure who is, is um, you know, associated with arguing for rights of the free men of color. And as I point out, because that was decoupled from slavery because the gulf between an enslaved person and a free person, regardless of skin, was enormous. So Julien Raymond, as a free man of color with a white father, white French father, and a mother of mixed race, um, who was one of the, from a very wealthy family of enslavers who were free people of color, because that's another one of the central paradoxes of the book, means that Raymond is attentive to prejudices against him and against people of his quote-unquote class, for lack of a better term, right? They don't use race the way that we use race now, but people mm -hmm. of his class, free people of color, land-owning enslavers. So he's very sensitive to that. Um, he does ar get around to the point of he believes in gradual emancipation, but as we see, as we follow him on his journey, that he can't get behind the revolution until it's inevitable. It's, mm -hmm. it's happening and, you know, Toussaint Virtue is established as governor general. Um, and he can't really, he can't get behind the immediate emancipation of the enslaved population until it already happens. Mm -hmm. He's kind of stuck um, because he has property interests and class interests in maintaining the slave system, but he has kind of personal affective um mm -hmm issues with the prejudices that he knows undergird slavery. So mm -hmm. how do you pull these two things apart? And what we see from following him on his journey is you can't. The prejudice mm -hmm. against the free people of color were the same prejudices fueling slavery. And the white colonists are so adamantly white supremacist, it actually kind of like boggles the mind. Even when people say, you know what, if we just give the free men of color rights, they won't join up with the enslaved. They won't cause a rebellion. And we can keep on keeping on as we were before. And they mm -hmm. are no way the white colonists. We mm -hmm. cannot give them any rights. They're animals. They're not like us. And they, you see that sort of blinding illogic that is color prejudice. And we watch Julien Raymond confront it. And it's almost and like you were talking can, about the illo blind, illogical white, like supremacist, white supremacist um, behavior of the men in not wanting to give the men of color rights, even if we left them alone. OK, because I was tracking. I'll let you go. I'm so sorry. Okay. Yes. yes. So just th that idea, you know, that that Julien Raymond is sort of absorbing and trying to understand a group of people who put the desire to be racist and oppress other people, by which he means the free people of color. He hasn't even gotten to slavery yet. Over their property interests, over their class, their shared pro property and class interests. And he, as he comes to terms with that, he realizes, oh, the white colonists are going to do every single thing in their power to make sure that we don't get free rights. So one answer to this will be to put into place um, a policy of gradual emancipation. But this policy that he conceives of never comes to pass because the enslaved are not interested in any of these sorts of compromises, even when they come from Toussaint Louverture or Jean Diassou or Jean-Francois, the other kind of revolutionary, early revolutionaries driving the, the revolution forward, who the, the vast majority of the enslaved understand that their interests might be different from certainly the free people of color and and the enslaved population are affected by the deaths of Vincent Auger and Jean-Baptiste Chavan who were executed on the wheel in February 1791 for arguing for free rights for free men of color and engaging in a small-scale rebellion to that effect they are affected by that um they are persuaded by the charismatic Toussaint Louverture once he comes to lead the rebellion. But they're not compromising and they know they have the numbers and the power. And when we read the letters of Toussaint and company back to the white colonial authorities with whom they're mm -hmm. trying to negotiate, they even say, we can't make these compromises you want because how are we going to get the enslaved, the formerly enslaved population in rebellion to put down their weapons. We can't just tell them, go back to work. Do you understand how hard this will be? And so, you know, I appreciate that what you got from was, you know, these revolutionaries are imperfect figures as well. And we have to muddle along with them if we want to understand 
the entire process, why it takes 13 years to go from the moment of revolution to the moment of independence, instead of just why didn't they just declare independence immediately? <laughs> you know, and in the Haitian thinkers later explain nobody wanted that in the beginning. Here's the process of how we got to want that, how we came to want it. And it's, it, it's, it would be that that's a wild thought. You know, you have to think like during that time, yes, it, but that's a, it's a wild. So it's easy to, to right now say, well, why didn't you just do it from the beginning? It's like, well, you know, so it's, um, I just think, you know, with you placing these time points and what was happening in other places of the world, for example, you also bring in Guadeloupe, what was happening in Guadeloupe and in Martinique at the time, and how those were also affecting how Haiti can, you know, move forward or how Haitians were viewed, um, the different dialogues that were taking place. And also it, um, it also speaks to in part two, when you start talking about how even after independence, there was a struggle as to how to move away from a slave economy, right? Especially if you have people who, you know, free men of color who are profiting from the system. And then you also see like the different, so you also point to the voices within the, within that, you know, sphere of, you know, this, this moving to a, a labor of economy and how they have to, how slavers, slaves had to purchase themselves and how this was still being advocated for by, you know, Toussaint Louverture and by Andre Rigaud. Like it's these, these different, like these tussles of how to get to a place of freedom. And, um, so can you speak a little bit about, the, the different types of philosophy of economies that was happening at the time in order, in a way that could benefit the people. Because at the end of the day, it was the people who are victims. It was the Haitian people, slaves who were victims um, in all of this, right? And having to purchase themselves and having to find a way to make a living in order to get rights. Um, and we didn't even touch on like women. Like, <laughs> it's like, it's just, it's a, it, I think this book, is a good, uh, it complements Jessica Marie Johnson's Wicked Flesh. It also made me think of like, oh, and that, like, you know, putting those two together. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's when, when Julia Raymond conceives of his gradual emancipation policy, that's where he introduces this idea that the enslaved person could purchase themselves back, right? Because unlike in a lot of other um slave societies, for lack of a better term, uh, places in the world where there was chattel slavery, right? Um, where there were mechanisms in place for an enslaved person to be able to purchase, quote unquote, themselves. This situation wasn't really the case in the colony. And Raymond explains how previous to his policy, how someone could get free. And a lot of it relied on having this goodwill of a quote unquote master, etc. And then of course, obviously there was the other way, which was marronage, but which we haven't even touched on yet but which is a, a different sort of uh, path mm -hmm. to freedom. But he's talking about official kind of state-sanctioned freedom where you have freedom papers, mm -hmm. right? And he introduces this idea of purchasing oneself. And then it looks like under Santonax and Pulverel, who are the ones who officially declare the end of slavery um, in French Saint-Domingue, although, of course, the enslaved have for large, for, you know, huge way of it liberated themselves, but they sort of sanction it. It's followed up in 1794 by the French kind of unilaterally abolishing slavery all across their colonies. And then the question becomes, okay, if we want to have a prosperous colony, how do we do that with the euphemism they use as free hands? And so they conceive of all these like twisted and torturous labor systems. And the reason why I wanted to take the reader through that is I have seen so many times people say, it was pseudo-slavery. They reinstituted slavery. They said slavery was abolished. It's so much more complicated than that because there is, there's enslaved labor, there's chattel slavery, and there's free labor. The idea that those are, those are just the only two things that exist are not correct. And we know that because think about in our own world when people try to talk about contemporary mm -hmm. human trafficking, back labor, to just use the word slavery or to we don't get the heart of what is actually happening and the forms and processes that allow legally certain structures to exist. So what they do in the colony, first, the French commissioners, the white French commissioners come to the island, do 
is they put into place a labor structure that is not slavery. No one's being bought or sold. They outlaw whipping. They put in place working hours, et cetera. They put in place a system of compensation for formerly enslaved people who are now going to be called cultivateurs and cultivatrices, cultivators, mm-hmm. farmers, right? Um, they put in place a system for them to share in the profits of the plantation. But when you see how it's broken down, how is it really going to work? The plantation owners owe money to the state. They've got to pay for their property. They've got to pay for the equipment. They have to make hospitals. There are all these regulations, right? So the question becomes, well, how do they how do they actually put this into practice? And then subsequent French commissioners, of which Raymond ends up being one, and then Governor General Toussaint Louverture, they all try to put in place mm. reforms. But each reform kind of gets further and further away from free labor, which is not, unfree labor is not the same thing as slave mm-hmm. labor, right? Because cattle slavery depends on the buying and selling and the person's position as inalienable. They have to be uh, a slave for life, essentially. And that's why in Saint-Domingue, there really weren't many mechanisms for an enslaved person to go mm-hmm. to freedom other than in marinage or the goodwill of the master, quote, unquote, things that we discuss. And so um, the big word in the Toussaint Virture, the sort of transformation from the agent Edouville from France, a white agent from France, and from when Toussaint Virture come into control, circulates around this question of engagements. Can a person who is engaged working on one plantation leave and go work on another plantation? Or can they decide, you know what, I the farm life is not for me. I'm going to go into the city and I'm going to a job in a house and do whatever. And the question becomes mm-hmm. no, that they see that actually a lot of people don't really want to work, do that backbreaking labor anymore. Questions we confront in our mm-hmm. own society in terms of agriculture. This is hard, not well compensated labor, backbreaking in terrible weather conditions a lot of times. And um, and so they put into place both Eduville and Toussaint Louverture policies of they have to stay there for this number of years. And the people on those plantations don't like that. And that becomes the kind of big story of the mm-hmm. Haitian revolution is it's against power. And if that power is black or white, if that power is trying to take away rights or or somehow, you know, um, restrict them, it's the people who rise up and say, and say no. And that comes out organically in the writings of the white colonists as it does of the French agents and ministers, as it does in the writings of the revolutionaries who were who at the head of the state or the head of the colony in, in Toussaint Virtue. Yeah, and it just so it's like in, when you move towards like the part two and three, you see that nation versus state. You see how um, that the imperfect hero, <laughs> I, I do like that term that she used, that imperfect hero. And, he, you know, you also do pointed out that Louverture in one of his letters, he does say he's like, I have made many errors, like I'm not perfect. Um, but it's just that moment of these moments of transitions are it's hard, you know, like there was I mean, there is really no other way I can put it in terms of like I'm reading this and I'm like, wow. Which, what is the way out? Like, you know, how do you even navigate a way out of this? Because it, it's not a utopic world where it's like, well, everybody gets money, everybody gets land. Someone is going to lose and someone is going to win. And then you, this is, this becomes clear in the, um, when you start placing the Christopherian area, you know, it, you see how that divide continues to grow between the nation versus the state. It's like once, once upon a time it was together, but then there's like the slow gradual of like it, it just each, each moving away from each other. And it's just very, um, it's disheartening, but it's just, once again, you put it, you put enough history to see like, this is how it came into play. Um, what, what do you think were some of the challenges in articulating that argument? Because um, you, you put it in the book wonderfully, but what do you think as you were writing it, <laughs> were you just like, how in the world, <laughs> um, you know, putting all this information together? And also, it's just very interesting, like, you know, once again, traditions, contradictions, trying to find unity. You mentioned how um, one of the, was it Chant- Chantelet or Chantelet, one of the poets, one of the... There was one moment in time where he was praising Louverture, and then 
right after, oh, it was Dessalines, excuse me. He was praising Dessalines, and right after the assassination, he was onto something else, and he was just like, I revoke everything I once said. And it's just very interesting, right? Those those moments of, like, back and forth and back and forth. And it, I don't know, it's like, that's where the life, that's where life happens. That's where life is. That's where the theory exists. It's not in one corner alone, so... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the major challenges was to sort of understand that the first Haitian states under Dessalines, uh, Pétion, and Christophe conceived of themselves, because right in the epilogue, Jean-Claude Mars, the Haitian ethnographer, really kind of um, helped me to understand this in the sense of they conceive of themselves as they're together. They have the shared interests, right? But what we see throughout going throughout the book with kind of our perspective, able to read it back, is that there is still, there's still power and that's the state. And then there's the people who are, you know, arguing for their right to life and to live in freedom and, and that's the nation. And that even though the Haitian state is conceived as those two things are together, you need the Haitian state if you want to be free, if you want to be independent, if you don't want the French to try to bring back slavery, which, of course, they continue to try to do throughout the 19th century. Then you need us and we must be together. And if we have to do harsh things from the state perspective, you will understand as the people that we're doing it for your own good, even if you don't agree with each every single one of our daily decisions. And then when you start to see that fracture, you start to see that hegemony is hegemony, mm. hegemony <laughs> everywhere in the world. And that was Tuyo's point. And he said, you know, everywhere in society, dog eats dog. And you always see this contest for power. Yes. So if, if in every society, dog eats dog, you know, he, he's basically using, he takes, again, he transforms that Marxist perspective of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. And he talks about, he uses language uh, in Tidi Feboulet that that Haitians use, which is the elite. And then he uses indigenous because in the 20th century, especially there were all these kind of quote unquote indigenous movements in Haiti. And then of course, Dessalines uh, revolutionary army was called the Armée Indigène, the indigenous army. So saying there's elite and there's indigenous. And I bring it around to the end of the book to show that actually that perspective surges through 19th century Haitian thought, because in the Gazette Royale, we find the, the, magazine, the uh, newspaper's editor under King Henri Christophe, who's most likely at that time Baron de Vate, saying, there's always been in Haiti the people who want slavery and the people who don't want slavery. And this is the major contest of the world. And he says, and it continues to exist. And then when we get to Jean-Pierre Boyer, the Haitian president who signs the 1825 indemnity, um, locking Haiti into this, paying this 150 million francs as the, the price of liberty, we see that if you are in the elite you might do something like that because you won't be nearly as affected as mm -hmm. the people who are the indigenous, so the people, farmers, who, as Antonio Firmin and the later 19th century Haitian thinkers, um, really show us mm -hmm. they're the ones who pay the price. The Haitian people of today are the ones who pay the price. The Haitian mm -hmm. state looks like it's paying the price. It's not because they have their money stored in overseas offshore as a cow. You know, baby dog Jean-Claude Duvalier lived in exile in France, mm -hmm. came home to Haiti. To die. He was fine. After everything, <laughs> Jean-Pierre Boyer was fine. Even in the, the coup d'etat mm -hmm. that unseated him in 1843, he can know they're fine. He's not fine are the Haitian people. And so that contest has existed and we see its origins going back into the colonial period, into the revolutionary period. Yeah. It's, um, and it's, once again, it's something that is, you can see it's a model, but it's replete throughout the whole world. Right. And if I thinking about um, the African context, it's the same thing. How many African leaders um, do what they do, but then when it's time for them to retire and leave the government, they go and they seek retirement in France. Um, that's what their that's where their home is. That's where everything for the. It's like it's a it's a really sick relationship, right? Because the people are being left um, taxed out of their minds um, to pay whatever debt is you know left. And so while something that I really appreciated while you were making your argument is it's there's something that modern day scholars can learn from by looking at Haitian thinkers and writers uh, from the 18th and 19th century in a way that they collaborate with the dead. 
right? They do this thing. Well, you present it very well in like, you're not speaking for them. You're not speaking for any, but you're really showing how there is what decolonial, you know, things that we're doing now, this has been done before, but there was a method that was used, which was very effective that allows us to look back today. Um, So can you talk about this process of collaborating with the debt, using these personal experiences and memories um, to reconnect and tell the stories of the ancestors? How did, like, what was your process? Did you, the more you got into it, the more you learned from the scholars, what were some pinpoints where you were like, oh, this is not something I could have learned from a classroom, but you learned it by looking at, you know, the writing of this, the pamphlets. Um, I just love the things that you we learn outside of a classroom and how that affects and is incorporated into our research. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's this really powerful moment in Robin Mitchell. Oh, I love Venus that book. Noir, that was, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. about Sarchi Bartman, who Sarah Bartman was known as the quote unquote hot and taut Venus, a horrible exploitation that this woman from what's now South Africa went through at the hands of French and British exploiters. And when she's kind of, you know, in front of the remains, Sarchi Bartman's remains, I, I believe the Musée de Lone in Paris, And she says, you know, I'm going to try to do justice to your story. Like, I don't know if I can, but I just, I'm going to try to, right? And in thinking about how our responsibility as scholars is to communities, is to our students, we have a lot of responsibilities, but I do think that we have a huge responsibility to our subjects, not to paint them as Mm. heroes who are infallible, um, which is like (laughs) the great men version of history, right? But um to get the story right. Um, so many people, we all know what it feels mm. like when we feel misunderstood or that there are certain parts of our story that haven't been told, we can't tell, we don't know how to articulate for ourselves. And that if you could collaborate with somebody mm. who could help you to tell that story, right? I mean, people mm-hmm. do this all the time with ghost writing, right? If they don't feel like they have the skills to be able to bring their narrative to light. And that's not to say that, you know, the author is always the best source for understanding their own life. But we're talking about um, historical mm. figures who are no longer with us, who we can't talk to and interview. And when encountering their stories, someone like Julien Raymond, I didn't want to just say, oh, Julien mm-hmm. Raymond wasn't for yeah. the revolution. Like, I'm so disappointed in him, even though I am. I'm disappointed mm-hmm. in him that he can't get there. But I also sought to try to understand why he can't get there and what we can learn from him, his errors and his faults. As you mentioned in your other question, you know, Toussaint Zerchur at the end of his life said, I have mm-hmm. made many mistakes. I'm human, you know, but... Mm. Is any man exempt from them? Is there somebody who didn't make a mistake? And then also we're talking about calibers of mistake. And we're also Mm -hmm. talking about intention, right? So Napoleon Bonaparte is Mm. intentionally trying to bring back slavery, bringing a genocidal policy to the island, encouraging the destruction of all the revolutionaries and all their supporters. And the scale of that is just enormous in its ricocheting consequences. And that's what we see by moving through the writings of Sean Lott and Boisrond Tonnerre, secretaries to Desalines and to other um, Asian leaders like Henri Christophe. We see that really, that there's a trauma there. There's a lot of trauma that remains from the past. And so I tried to remember that as I'm writing, that I'm talking about people who lived through things that mm. we can only imagine, actually. We can only imagine them. And so when Antinor Fermat at the later end of the 19th century, Haitian ethnographer says, when I go through the history of my countrymen, my compatriots, and I see what moral fortitude they had to mm-hmm. want to go on living, first of all, after what they experienced, to try to build a state that could be good and right for the Haitian people and protect the Haitian people, he says, I think they're above all reproach. And it reminds me of the moment in mm-hmm. Aimé Césaire's discourse on colonialism, his famous essay in which he says, you want to talk to me about wars that were happening between various quote-unquote tribes in Africa or in the Caribbean? You know what? I'm making a systematic defense of the colonized because you don't know what would have happened had you not mm-hmm. interfered, speaking to the Europeans. Extraordinary possibilities wiped out. And that's what I see in the Haitian cases. The early leaders, as I clearly show, 
are each one trying to get better. Mm-hmm. Some of them are trying harder than some others. And mm-hmm. France comes in and stops. It's like the, the garage door closed and now you're trapped inside. They come in and stop it and they only open the door when they've pulled apart the Haitian nation from the Haitian state to such an extent that it remains in the situation that it's in today, where there are people in power who barely have to disguise mm-hmm. their disdain for the people. They're, they don't provide them with infrastructure, schools, hospitals, roads. You don't even have to do any of that anymore. And that's what Louis-Joseph Janvier, another late 19th century Haitian thinker, and Firmin were talking about when they said, did the early leaders, Toussaint, Dessalines, Pétion, Christophe, make mistakes? Yes. But it was Boyer in that forced, manipulated collaboration with the French who takes us on a completely different trajectory where now you don't even have to try to offer services because the part, the long meditations on Christophe mm-hmm. were not to defend him and all of the things he's charged with. To say, he was telling, look at what I'm doing for you and was doing those things for the people. And that is how you, you could get to a place perhaps where we are in the United States where people think, mm-hmm. oh, but I like my school and my home and my road and my whatever. Right. But in mm-hmm. Haiti, isn't that just the huge difference? You can, you can have all this power, amass all this power, wield it violently against the people, and you don't even have to build them a road or a school. And that was the moment when there was just a huge sea change and shift. And then the other moment when that huge shift happened um, was the occupation. And so for me, remembering that this is, this is a history written by people who, uh, or, or that I'm calling forth their writings, people who have lived with deep trauma post-traumatic stress and are trying to find their way through it while recognizing that and still hoping for the good. Isn't that the amazing thing? The Haitian writers are saying, we can still do something good. And it's when I got to Jean Place Mars that I thought, oh, that was the first time I saw a Haitian mm-hmm. writer say, I don't know if we can get out of this now after the US occupation. I don't know. I, I felt something change in the air. There was a different sound and it didn't sound like anything that I've heard before in Haiti. Mm. And that was kind of like a gut punch, you know? And I think we can, I I always say to myself, we can keep going and keep reading this because the people we're writing about have been through things. Like I said, we can only imagine. We can keep going because these are important stories. um, Yeah, that was, that was beautifully put. Um, That was, and I think by the end of the book, I walked away like, we can continue to live. You know, it's, it was bad. It was, I, I don't even know if there's a terminology for it because we can't say bad or worse, but through everything, they continue to live. They continue to fight. Um, and the testimony is there. I think that's the most important part. That's another takeaway from your book is like the testimony, everything these Haitian thinkers, writers did, they did it to bear testimony for the future generations to see for them, for us today to look at and be like, Hey, we, this is proof um, of the, the struggles to get to a place of freedom. And even today, right. Freedom is very, it's like, you know, with hand air coats, it depends on where you are in the globe. Um, It depends on how you view it, but we can still continue to fight. And I think that's the, it did give me that courage. especially seeing the times that we're in today. And um, how did the process of writing (laughs) this book, once again, you said 15 years. So, wow. I mean, (laughs) I don't know how you feel, how you felt at the end, but how did this process, um, Dr. Javinsky always tells me the process of writing a book changes you. Um, So how did, how did it leave you and where are you at now? Um, I would say I, it, it, there were just so many kind of emotional, there were, there are so many kind of emotional like ups and downs you go through in the process of writing a book, but especially writing a book like this, because just so many times where I just wanted to think, why can't, why couldn't people have been better? Why would, you know, I was right there with Vate, like, why would mm-hmm. you treat another human being this way? The moment when he says that I've been meditating on this passage of his, I quoted in Tropics of Haiti as well, where he says something to the effect of, even if you could prove that other human beings of this type were inferior to you, why would that mean that you would rape, torture, and kill them and enslave them? 
you wouldn't do that to an animal. And you think you're the owner of the animal. Why would you do that to another human being? And that is the central kind of paradox, I think, of human existence. You know, the, I, there's another passage I quote from Jean-Paul Sartre from his mid-20th century play, The Unburied Dead is the translation, and it's about, um, it takes place in Nazi-occupied France. And, you know, he says something, one of the characters, Henri, I believe, says, you know, is there any reason to go on living when there exist men who will beat you until the, your bones break? Like, and yet we, we know that those situations exist and we have to keep on moving forward. And I would say that one, one of the things that changed the most in me was just understanding how much compassion mm -hmm. we need to have to move forward in this life and to live in this life in this world of so many perspectives is that I don't, I think that Cesare was right when he says, you know, all the museums in the world would not be worth one mm -hmm. ounce of compassion. All the museums in the world mean nothing. If you would have behaved with compassion, you wouldn't have needed a museum of Native American history, which is you know, essentially talking about. The museum is by itself nothing and means nothing and is worthless. And so just to, re to remember, that is a harder thing to live, right? When you live in a world where people are spewing hate at you or people you love or, and, and large groups in the world and the situation that Haiti is going under to say, each of these mm -hmm. people are still people. The Haitian proverb, tout moun se moun. And so we cannot say that we can dehumanize people because they're engaged in X, Y, Z behavior. And I mean, this is the entire sort of rhetoric and theory um, that undergirds prison abolition, right? Mm -hmm. People are still people. No people in cages. People are still people. And, um, and that is a, that's a hard perspective, I think, for many people to live with. And it's scary. And so I, that's what I would say. One thing is compassion, trying to live with the most compassion I can. Um, but the other thing is to realize that mm -hmm. the, there is real fear that I want people to have learned from the past. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they do. And that we have to um, understand the fleetingness of every kind of privilege and right that we have that there's always someone um, and some entity that wants to take it away because, you know, again, to the, the Gazette Royale article, there are still people who believe mm -hmm. in slavery metaphorically, and they are always be opposed to those who want freedom, literally. Um, and, and we have to remember that in our scholarship as well, as we're being careful and compassionate um, and writing and, and a little bit of fear is always healthy in terms of keeping us on the sort of keeping us on the right path. The importance of work choice, you know, because punishment in one context, it, it's actually torture, right? Or um, just, just the, I think that's, that's another one that I really appreciate that you've mentioned in this conversation. It's like careful of how we, the words we use to describe a situation, um, because they mean different things. And I'm just so appreciative of this work. It's so detailed. I love it. It's there. You can spend hours on the chapters. Um, so like there's the big takeaways, there's the small takeaways, but um, it's definitely a work that if anyone reads, they can see the amount of detail, time, um, and just thoroughness you've put into it so thank you so much for 15 years <laughs> oh my goodness but um what are you working on anything now where has this work led you <laughs> <laughs> yes so i am um, writing a biography that's kind of a narrative history of the mm. life of um, king Henri christophe of haiti so you notice there were the latter part of the book and then mm -hmm. especially in a couple of the final chapters um really a lot of detail about the kingdom. And um, he mm -hmm. was not just a fascinating person whose life I wanted to know more about and policies I wanted to know more about, come to understand. But um, one of the most, along with Desalines, most uh, defamed figures mm -hmm. in not just Haitian history, but world history. Um, and so um, in my second book, which is about Baron de Vate, who worked th uh, under Henri Christophe, I talked a little bit about mm -hmm. some of the plays, the 20th century plays that detailed both of their lives, the ones where both of them appeared. Um, but mm -hmm. there are actually so many more um, that, and so it's not a, it's uh, the biography is not a meditation on those, although it does use those fictional portrayals of his life as a way into um, why we should 
We need to mm-hmm. understand the actual life of this person um, as closely as we can, even though there are tons of silences in the historical record. And we uh, have to, uh, you know, I have to use creative methods sometimes to try to get at what his life must have been like or could have been like. And, um, and so that's where it's led me as well in terms of that kind of compassion and careful piece mm-hmm. is this is a person's life. Um, we can't just say, this is what I wanted that life mm-hmm. to be. And I don't have another answer. So I'll say that was what it was. Um, and the compassion mm-hmm. for a person who was enslaved and lay, and fought his way through so many unimaginable circumstances and became a head of state king and made made mistakes and had errors and he paid for those mistakes. He took his own life. And, you know, I have different interpretations I'm working through of, you know, how we can understand that today. Um, but when we see the trajectory of Haiti's first three leaders, if we accept Petion out of it, we have one who mm-hmm. dies a horrible death at a neglect in prison, which is just a terror. So before independent Haiti, technically, um, but again, creator of that 1801 constitution for the colony. Desalines is assassinated. Christophe commits suicide, right? That instead of reading this as like, oh, well, Petion is the only one who died a natural yeah. death, so he must have been the best, best one. Right. Reading it that way to think, you know, what th- that is mm-hmm. a kind of insane trajectory to think about. Um, and so in sitting with Christophe's life, I want to sit in a place where I don't have all the answers and it's okay not to have all the answers. You know, I talk about the colonial mm-hmm. drive to know is when violence happens, right? Knowing above all, it doesn't matter who gets hurt mm-hmm. in the process. We're going to know. I'm going to put Sarchi Hartman mm-hmm. on a stage and dissect her in front of people, right? Like that is knowing above all, <laughs> no matter who gets hurt. And and um, and and it's not that important to know at the end of the day. Um, it, it's more important to understand. And so that's what I am trying to do. Well, thank way. you so much. Uh, this has been such a pleasure. We hope to have you back on once that's done but you know in using your words compassion (laughs) you know compassion um we just want to make sure that you have enough mental space (laughs) um and we would just definitely love to have you back on but thank you so much this is this is really um a great book thank you for all the work thank you (laughs) thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it Thank you.